0: Welcome to Episode 60, An Introduction to Suicide Risk Assessment, A Critical Overview, featuring Noreen Vanderhoeven, Licensed Clinical Social Worker. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today we are joined by Noreen Vanderhoeven, Noreen is a licensed clinical social worker with over 30 years of experience in the field, and she is specialized in suicide prevention and suicidology. Uh, She also is EMDR certified and trained in the treatment of trauma, depression, and anxiety, and she serves as the chair of the Youth Suicide Prevention Committee for the American Association of Suicidology. Noreen, thank you so much for taking some time to share your expertise with us. Thanks, Beth. I'm happy to be here. Noreen, tell us a little bit about you and how you acquired this unique and important specialization. Uh, With suicide in
1: particular, I uh, supervised a mobile crisis response team for youth for Ventura County for about five years. And when I started working there, I really had no idea to the depth and extent of what Uh, suicidality, suicidal ideation, prevention, intervention, postvention, all of it really was. And they had, in 2012, the American Association of Suicidology had their conference in Los Angeles, and it was a perfect opportunity for my boss and I to go, and that was really my introduction, and I learned how much I didn't know (laughs) and decided that this was so important because this was the high-risk population we were working with. And about uh, 85% of the youth that called from ages, well, the earliest was three, not the three-year-old call, (laughs) a parent called, we went to assess, up to uh, 20. And about 85% were suicidal ideation or already had made attempts. So, and I've just gotten more involved over time
0: with that. Thank you again for being here and sharing this expertise with us. We know that so many of us during our careers will be faced, unfortunately, with a client suicide, and I think a lot of us don't necessarily know what signs to look out for and what steps we can be taking to really understand this phenomenon and how we can best help.
1: Yes, that is true, and it's very frustrating. Um, In schools now, they are starting to do some training, but certainly not a course on it. Maybe they'll do one class on it which really isn't even enough to touch the surface, it gives you an idea. But uh, I was just reading this morning actually on one of the suicidology listservs that between seven out of 10 and eight out of 10 people uh, will actually express some desire to somebody uh, and then die by suicide. So suicide is preventable but we just need to know how to identify it and identify the
0: warning signs. Tell us a little bit about those warning signs that we should really be paying attention to. Um, one of the biggest warning signs
1: is, uh, well, Thomas Joyner who is out of Florida state university talks about the interpersonal psychological theory of suicidal ideation and um suicidal behavior, sorry. And what it is, he talks about uh, three things, thwarted belongingness, meaning a person doesn't feel like they belong anywhere, Uh, perceived burdensomeness. So if a person feels like they are a burden to somebody and then the actual capability for suicide. So if you have the first two, that kind of makes the desire for suicide. And then that third one adds in that perfect storm where the person has already given up, they really just don't care about ending their life, they don't care that they're gonna experience pain when they die by suicide, they just, they're over it. And kind of what I talk about is that a lot of people have said, um, I hear all the time, and it's, it just makes me shiver, is that they say um, suicide, people who attempt suicide or die by suicide, they're, it's a um, selfish thing. But really, if you take a paper towel roll and you just look down that paper towel roll and that's all you see is that little circle right in front of you, that's all those people see. They have no awareness of anything else anywhere else around them. And so that just kind of tells you the the tunnel vision that they really do have.
0: When talking about these three components, can you give us some examples or an example of what this looks like in practice and how to really focus in on those three factors and how they present in the room?
1: yeah, sure um, one uh, a good example is someone comes into your office and they start talking about how they uh, teen let's say has no friends they're very isolated. Um, they're constantly bullied. Then on top of that, they feel like they are a burden to their parents. The parents aren't paying attention to them. Um, I have one client who came in last week who told me that she tried to kill herself five times in front of her mom and her mom just didn't even pay attention. So one of the times she took a wire and tried to strangle herself and actually left ligature marks on her neck and her mom just like looked the other way. And so she was over it. It's not that she necessarily, in her in particular, wanted to die, but she felt like she had nobody to talk to, nobody to turn to, nobody cared for her. She was more of a pain in the neck than she was able to, you know, have support. She didn't feel like anybody loved her. And so, therefore, she felt that there was really no purpose for her to live anymore. And so that's, you know, someone could come in very depressed, very flat, um, not giving you any information, but the minute they start giving those cues of, um, it's just not worth it. I don't want to be here anymore. You really have to explore what those mean more because that it's very ambiguous as to what that can mean. It could mean so many different things. Um, but sometimes all they want you to do is just ask them. So Kevin Hines, um, who wrote a book called Crack Not Broken, he jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge and survived. And he speaks all over the world now. Amazing guy. He just put out a documentary called The uh, Suicide, The Ripple Effect. But what he talked about was when he was ready to jump, all he wanted was someone to come ask him, are you okay? You know? Is anything going on? Can I help you? Anything like that, just to give him the thought that someone cared. And nobody did. He stood there for a long time and nobody did. And so that's when he jumped. And as soon as he jumped, he regretted it. Um, And he had all these, I believe, if I remember correctly, there were sea lions swimming around underneath him, keeping him afloat. And he thought they were sharks or something but they were keeping him afloat until the coast guards came and rescued him. So people really just want to know that they are loved and cared about. And that's just the beginning. You know, it goes so much deeper than that. But a lot of times that's all it takes um, to stop a person from following through.
0: That example you give about the paper towel roll, I think, is really interesting in highlighting that tunnel vision. And in the example you gave, all he really wanted to to have was um, awareness that he mattered. He wanted to have connection with somebody and know how he might fit into the larger world. In your field, in your specialization, what are some myths that you find um, that are prevalent?
1: Um, so believe it or not, there are so many therapists who think they will never see a suicidal client in their practice. And um, myth, <laughs> rumor, uh, uh, any clinician, it's a one in four chance that you will have a client die by suicide. And that has increased over the last I would say six or seven years. It used to be one in seven. Um, and psychiatrists are even higher. Psychiatrists are about one in three dying in their practice. Um, another myth is, um, that nobody believes that that adolescent suicide, a lot of people do not believe that adolescent suicide is as high as it is. And so a lot of people think that, um, Oh, teens—they're just being manipulative, or they're just seeking out attention, or they're doing this for attention. Well, yes, (laughs) they are. They are crying out for help, and so you know it's up to the therapist to to help them, you know, spin it um, in a different way to see. Even for adults, like why is it that they are crying out for attention and doing this? It's not just that they they have
0: some manipulative behavior um, that they're doing. You bring up the word manipulative, which is something in clinical practice that we're um, obviously kind of discouraged from using, discouraged from labeling, I guess I should say. It's something that we certainly sometimes hear from family members that don't understand this behavior and why it's happening. How do we as clinicians help separate what might be suicidal posturing from real, true suicidal behavior and suicide risk when we're looking at it through the lens of um, perhaps what might be access to pathology and the importance of separating out these two different phenomena?
1: Um, So sometimes there's not. And any time anyone says anything, I have, right now I work with um, more adults than I do um, teens, but i worked with teens for 30 years so i'm kind of shifting that a bit but even now i hear adults talk about their spouses sometimes when they're having you know struggles oh that's just you know manipulative well even if they've made a gesture they're making a gesture for a reason So, you know, it really then takes the therapist afterwards to sit down and to assess what is it exactly. Did they do this because they truly wanted to die? They did not want to live anymore. They wanted to go to sleep and they never wanted to wake up again. Um, Or did they do this because they just had so much pain and they wanted their pain to end and they didn't know how to stop their pain. So there are a lot of different reasons for why someone tries to kill themselves and the um, I guess the niches is is to really try and find out what that is so that then you can give them why do they want to live and what do they have you know to live for and give them hope to live so it's really changing that conversation from why do you want to die to what is it that you know we can help you want to live for
0: You said that a lot of times it's people wanting to know that they're cared for and that they fit in somewhere. Many of us are trained in our master's or doctoral programs to initiate safety planning when we hear from a client that they may be having suicidal thoughts or any kind of suicidal behaviors um, from the past. What's the effectiveness of safety planning and what's been your experience with this treatment method? You know, it's interesting because safety planning by itself
1: is not very effective. So um, the other thing that there was just an article in, it was actually a couple of years ago in the Scientific American that talked about a suicide risk assessment isn't very effective. Well, when it comes down to it, it's not really suicide risk assessment that's not effective. It's suicide risk screenings that are not effective. So because what happens is when you screen for suicide, sometimes it's yes or no questions. And sometimes a client maybe isn't going to be honest with a yes or no question. And maybe it's not a yes or no answer. So unless you dive deeper and ask more thorough questions and really ask an in-depth, um, you know, do an assessment, then you're just not going to know. So once you're able to do that, then you can do a safety plan with that. But I also like do a whole rating scale to find out. So um, from one to five, where do you, where are you right now? You know, one is like, no thoughts of suicide. Five is you have a plan. You are going to follow through with it when you get home today. Where are you? And then I asked them, what What does that number mean to them? And then we go through and I have a rating scale that I've drawn out or I have them draw out if they want and list one through five, what each means so that they can help identify for themselves when they're going up or down on that rating scale and when they become more triggered. And then with that, and then with resources that mean something to them, or, you know, everybody goes, oh, well, why don't you just do mindfulness or why don't you do journaling or maybe that's not what's gonna be helpful for them. There are a gazillion different ways for people to be able to ground themselves or to you know, calm themselves. And um, I think a lot of clinicians just aren't aware of the depth and the extent of what those coping skills really are to be able to be helpful to people um, who are suicidal.
0: One thing I know that I was trained was to evaluate for the access to means. That can get a little bit nebulous because most of us have access to a car. Most of us have knives in our kitchen. Most, if not all of us, have access to something with which we could complete suicide, whether that's a cord or a rope or food or substances in which we could potentially end our lives. How does the availability of means really fit into the equation when it comes to assessing actual risk for suicide? Yeah, that's a tough one, because especially like with access to means with um,
1: lethal means with a gun is the number one way of um, dying by suicide. And so it's I think it's uh, over 50 percent or something. And so that's tough, because even if you say, okay, well, so give me your gun or, you know, we're going to take it to the police station or whatever we're going to do to secure it. Most people who have guns do have another gun stash somewhere. So, you know, that makes it tough. You can only do what you can do. Like you said, it's not like you can take away their car. If they're that high of a risk, then they need some other, you know, support. It's not necessarily always hospitalization. Um, Even when I started on the crisis team, it was like, oh, they can't keep themselves safe. We have to hospitalize them. But that's really not it because there are people who die by suicide in hospitals. Um, When I was on the crisis team, that did happen. Um, to one youth at one of the psychiatric hospitals. And here we thought we were keeping this kid safe. Uh, But it really then is kind of calling in the troops. You do have to have those supports, or maybe they need a higher level of care for a longer period of time, a more intensive program. It's just not hospitalization is really for stabilization. It's not treatment at all.
0: One of the things that I've seen in the research is the difference between our standard procedure when we are encountering clients that might have suicidal ideation or suicidal thoughts, and then what we do clinically to address that or to manage it. Things like psychiatric hospitalizations, I've kind of seen conflicting information about the effectiveness. What's been your experience with the effectiveness of psychiatric hospitalization and also some of the research behind that step of using a psychiatric hospitalization to address a client's suicidal ideation? You know, I don't know what the actual research
1: itself says, but I will tell you um, within the American Association of Suicidology, they have a community of lived experience folks. So they're one of our divisions actually. So just like we have a clinical division and a research division, um they are a division they make up a large portion and there are people that are very outspoken about that that hospitalization did not help them hospitalization was actually very harmful to them you know they needed other things so maybe some of them needed you know a lot more one-on-one support you know direct contact for a greater amount of time or someone you know to have a caregiver be with them some people needed a type of you know iop or php or even residential program to be able to help them through these things to to learn different skills rather than resorting to um, trying to kill themselves but hospitalization from what i saw when i worked at the crisis team we had a lot of teens that we would re-hospitalize And that necessarily did not work until we got them into that higher level of treatment. And part of that problem was, which is all over the country, is number one, those resources aren't enough. Um, And also when the crisis team, it's just really like crisis and referral. That's it. So you don't always have that opportunity. You can just refer them, but it's not necessarily, it's not your job to follow through on that, which is another broken piece of the system.
0: When a call has been made to a psychiatric emergency response team, either by you as a clinician or by somebody like a family member, what guidance or advice do you have for clinicians about how they can work alongside a psychiatric emergency response team in order to support improved outcomes of that experience and the potential hospitalization?
1: Mm, Awesome question. Um, I've had that a lot. (laughs) And both as a clinician in private practice now, and both as a supervisor of the crisis team. So really, the best way is for the, I always felt helpful is for the clinician to be able to give the crisis team the, you know, the clearest information that they can about their client with leaving out all of their biases of what, you know, they think should happen and really just present the clinical information and what the client is presenting with, because that's what they specialize in. And so they know, or they're supposed to know what to do. To move forward. And not all clinicians specialize in suicide prevention or risk assessment. And that's why you're calling them. So if you are able just to present as much information clearly as you can, then that's the most helpful thing. And then you step out of the way and let them do their job. And if they need to ask you questions, you are present for them to ask questions, but let them do their job.
0: One thing I've seen is the difficulty working alongside law enforcement. There are some counties or cities that have a response to psychiatric emergencies that includes clinical support, whether that's an emergency social worker or a therapist. And then sometimes it's really just a police officer or a group of law enforcement officers that are responding to a call. What guidance do you have about how we can work alongside law enforcement effectively?
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So in Ventura County, where we live in California, they have what's called CIT officers. So it's crisis intervention trained officers, and they receive 40 hours of mental health training and they actually learn how to ask the questions. And the correct language to use and how to be sensitive to these clients who are more escalated at times or who are very shut down because, you know, when a police officer shows up and the client shut down and won't talk, they think that they're being resistant or that they don't want to answer. And it's not that they don't want to answer. It's that sometimes they can't. So you can be there as an advocate and support your client in a different way than you would with a crisis team. Um, And really to help them get their message across or whatever their thoughts and feelings are across to the police officers, because ultimately, they're the ones who do have the ability to write the 5150 hold. So as much as you can collaborate and get them on your side, the, the better for your client.
0: You hinted at my next question, which relates to language and the actual wording that we use. What language do we need to be using when inquiring about a client's possible suicidality?
1: You know, the biggest thing that stands out to me just in suicide in general is people say um, someone committed suicide. And I was actually just reading one of the books that was written in 2011 that says committed suicide. And the language that we've um, been trying to change that to is died by suicide. Because if you are saying committed by suicide, it's sounding like the person committed a crime or that they did something wrong and they didn't, they have mental health issues and they could not get through that. They couldn't see anything to get past that. Um, so in asking the other thing is very, is people ask, um, so do you want to harm yourself? Well, harming yourself and killing yourself are two different things. So you need to ask directly, have you thought about killing yourself or have you thought about ending your life? And then you need to ask, have they made an attempt? And, you know, um, do they ask again about that one to five scale that we talked about? But use the word
0: "died" and kill and suicide, not harm yourself. I saw an article recently that suggested using the phrase thoughts of death when inquiring about suicidality. What are your thoughts on using a phrase like that or that exact phrase? I think someone could have thoughts of death and
1: not want to actually kill themselves. So people could have thoughts of death and just want to not be here in this life because they have too much pain, but that doesn't mean that they have any like intent or plan or know what they're gonna do, so you know there's kind of a continuum of starting at the thoughts and then just of death thoughts and then going to passive suicidal thoughts where someone's thinking about it and actually thinking about suicide but not think having ways, then there is the actual plan and someone has its active suicidal ideation where they do have a plan and intent um then there is when someone uh, makes what's called an aborted attempt. When someone comes, you know, when their attempt is stopped, um, someone comes in and finds them or they're sorry, that's when they stop themselves. The interrupted attempt is someone comes in to stop them. They walk in on them. Um, and then there is the actual suicide attempt and then someone dies by suicide. So if you're saying thoughts
0: of death, that doesn't really clarify suicide. If we were to have the hunch in session that someone may be suicidal, how do you actually start that conversation in your sessions? I'm really blunt about it. (laughs) And I just ask them,
1: I I will just say, you know, it seems like right now you're, you're extremely sad and I'm just really concerned. And I'm wondering if you've had thoughts of wanting to kill yourself.
0: And what do you do if the person says no, they explicitly deny any plan or means or suicidal thoughts, but your clinical sense, your spidey sense, if you will, is telling you otherwise? Um, then I'll usually
1: kind of go around, I'll ask them also, because the other thing is they might not have it it, at that moment. So they think that they're getting around like a loophole in answering you. Um, and then I'll go back and I'll ask, you know, had they done anything in the past or when was the last time that they had thoughts of wanting to kill themselves? And then if they continue with no, then I will go to the whole dying and death, uh, Scenario, and then I'll just have it continue the conversation and bring back up suicide. You know, I'll ask them at what point would they want to do something to kill themselves, and I'll also normalize it in the sense that a lot of people do have thoughts of suicide, but that doesn't mean that they need to be in the hospital. It doesn't mean that they're going to do anything about it. It just means that right now they're in a really, really bad place and they cannot see another way out. And so that's kind of entered their mind. And as soon as you normalize that thought a little bit or normalize the thoughts of death for them, sometimes people are more receptive then
0: to saying, well, yeah, that's kind of the way I feel. And For you, where do you draw the line with all of the experience and expertise you have on this topic um, of when it's time to escalate your clinical response to it? Um,
1: At two points. One, when they actually have a plan um, or if they've had a history of suicidal um, behavior before and this time they're kind of on the fence. And then I will still just say, well, you know what, let's get someone out here just to come do an assessment and talk a little further about it. Um, Sometimes that's all they need just to kind of keep themselves safe is to have that other like what they see as a higher level coming out. Even though I could do the same exact thing that the crisis team could do, um, I actually my assessments are a little more in-depth because I also have history that I've done a really thorough intake on that I can draw from. Um, It's just having that other person come in that sometimes shifts that for them.
0: You talked about the difference between a suicide screening and a suicide assessment. What do you think is important for us to understand about the difference between those two and how we appropriately utilize those in session? So
1: the suicide screenings are... um, There are many of them. So the um, ASQ is one, and then uh, QPR is one, and then there's um, the Columbia Suicide Rating Scale. So those are basically, you know, it'll say, um, it'll give you like four questions. The Columbia gives you four questions, yes or no questions. And then it says, if any of these are yes, then ask number five which is like directly about wanting to kill yourself, but it's not even that direct in a sense. So what if someone says no to all four questions, but you just kind of haven't hit on the right thing for them. Um, so it's really, you know, listening to what they're saying and knowing that they're having that hopelessness or that despair or Feeling that you know burdensome, a lot of people will come out and clearly say, "I just feel like I'm a burden." Um, so it's when you hear those things, and then it's asking a whole set of just much more in-depth questions, leading into either your you know rating scale and also into your um, then safety plan, and kind of where you go from that.
0: Review for us again those three components of Thomas Joyner's theory of interpersonal suicide risk. Um, Please list those out again for our listeners so that we can really start to conceptualize this information this way. So um, the first one is uh,
1: perceived burdensomeness. So whereas you feel like you're a burden, that uh, you are just causing way too many problems for people and that it would just be easier for everybody if you weren't here. It would be easier for your family, for your friends, for everybody else if you were not here. Then there was thwarted belongingness where people just don't feel like they belong. Um, I had a client who had absolutely no relatives, one friend who um, went to school with her, but she wasn't, she was kind of just as dysfunctional as my client. So she wasn't really a great support. Um, And my client had a cat. That was it. And, um, but she just felt like she was a burden that nobody understood her and that she felt like she was always just pushed aside and that she didn't belong anywhere. And, um, no one within any system, she was trying to go to school and to college and they didn't understand her. Um, and so those were those two things. And then when she started telling me about, this one particular night that she had alcohol and pills and she was going to take them, you know, when she hung up the phone with me and she was even just thinking of hanging up the phone on me was when I was able to actually convince her to call the crisis team, to have them, she was at home to have them come assess her and they did hospitalize her for five days or something. Um, but it's when you start hearing those things about, well, you know, why should I be here anyhow? Nobody cares, there's nobody here for me. you know, I'm just a pain in the neck, even to the people at the school and so those types of of things and then so that last one is you know what she had access to, so it's like access to means and then um the capability. It's like you just you have no reason to live, so you don't care that you're gonna die, so you're ready to go and end your life.
0: What about individuals who have utilized non-fatal means? They've taken a bottle of vitamins. They have utilized some kind of method that wouldn't likely kill them, but has still indicated some suicidality there. So these are the folks that have not utilized a knife or a gun or something that we really think of as being lethal what about those situations and what do you recommend we keep in mind when addressing and managing those situations?
1: Yeah, it's really about the intent. So so yes, some things are more lethal than others, although taking a bottle of Tylenol could be just as lethal if it's not caught in time, right? But um, it could be, I've, had, you know, teens go and say to their parents, Oh my God, I just took a bottle of Tylenol and now I regret what I did. So thankfully they're able to get to the hospital and able to get the care that they need. Um, but a lot of times it's, you know, more impulsive like that. So, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it's the intent of, do you want to die or are you just trying to get someone to pay attention to you? Cause there is no one there for you. And so, you know, that will make a, a statement Um, because you've tried everything else.
0: What are some other pieces of research about death by suicide that clinicians either may not know or may have heard uh, myths or myths truths about? You mentioned about the likelihood of clinicians seeing someone who is suicidal in their work. What about specific diagnoses that are associated with suicidality? What diagnoses indicate death by suicide versus what we might call suicidal posturing? Yeah, really interesting.
1: So uh, NAMI came out with some statistics recently showing that 50.4% of people who die by suicide do not have a mental health diagnosis. So that is a big myth. Um, And You know, if you talk to people, they're going to go, oh, the majority of people who die by suicide have mental health diagnosis and they're bipolar, they're, you know, schizophrenic or they're, you know, major depression with psychotic features. No. (laughs) Um, So that's really a myth. Uh, I think it's been a myth for a long time. And um, unfortunately, that definitely puts a stigma on mental health and it puts a stigma on, you know, suicide, the people who do attempt suicide and everything else. Um, the other big myth is um, it's always been one in six people are affected, from for every one person suicide, six people who are associated with that one person um, are affected by that person's death actually it's hundred I believe it's 154 um people are affected by that person's death so julie serrell who was the president of the american association of suicidology she's out of university of kentucky did research on that exact thing and as she she talked about it a couple of years ago at the conference um and there was like a big web that she drew and every person you know, another person knew or another, kind of that whole six degrees of separation thing. Um, That So suicide, suicide really does affect so many more people than anybody ever thought it to be. That was a huge myth within the community.
0: And I imagine that the death of celebrities plays into this as well and impacts this dramatically. I've had clients bring up the deaths of Rob Williams, Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, and I think the fact that Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain died so close together, that was a huge uh, time in the suicide community. But uh, that's another thing. So the actual statistic of suicide contagion is only 5%. And that's not to say that, people's risk of suicide don't go up or that their thoughts of suicide don't go up. Um, but the death by suicide is only 5%. Um, there was recently with 13 reasons why now coming out with season three, um, the American association of suicidology also has been very involved with Netflix in trying to um, help them understand why it is so critical that we don't uh, glamorize or show people dying by suicide on TV or in the media. And that when someone um, does die by suicide, it, it is triggering for so many people when they hear how or if they see how. So they worked with Netflix and Netflix um, did take out of season one, that ending of Hannah's death, which we're all just so grateful for. Um, But there had been in particular with that uh, show, an increase, a significant increase, more than just that 5% um, of death by suicide. And I don't know that that was necessarily um, a contagion effect to it as much as it was so triggering for so many people to see it, actually see it. So I don't think that if they didn't
0: actually see it on TV, I don't think the effects would have been as great as they were. I'm glad you bring up 13 Reasons Why. I certainly heard a lot about that from my clients and from their family members I think there was part of us maybe, and by us, I mean the clinical community that was relieved about being able to talk about suicide, but then also the other side of it of how it's influencing the behavior and the thinking by particularly adolescents about the availability or possibility of of death by suicide.
1: Yeah. And yes, definitely. And unfortunately, um, it wasn't so realistic in so many ways. Uh, it portrayed in particular, like the one thing that's coming to my mind right now is the uh, counselor who was talking to Hannah at one point, And she kept giving all these signs, like clear signs that any school professional would pick up on. And he basically just blew her off. Um, so that wasn't really realistic, you know, and, but I do think that that doesn't take away from the fact that a lot of not only just teens, but people feel that way. And some people feel that way in their work environments or from, you know, um, friends or colleagues or relatives. And so I think it was triggering in that. And, um, yes, I also heard from, I think every single one of my clients, um, and it did start a conversation, uh, But the fact that they have continued, you know, this show is also concerning. I don't know what season three is at all. um, And I didn't watch season two. (laughs) So, but it will be interesting to see kind of what now comes out of it with season one being re-released differently.
0: In schools, we've been seeing an increase in the conversation about recognizing suicidal behavior or listening for suicidal statements in friends, Um, teachers are receiving more training about how to recognize it in their students. What are your thoughts on those more formal school-based trainings? Um, Amazing. I wish
1: that they had more. And actually, so um, I, I know you mentioned the beginning, I'm the chair of the youth suicide prevention committee for um, AAS easier than saying American association of suicidology every time. (laughs) So it's AAS. Um, And, One of the projects, actually a huge project we just worked on, we collaborated with Nationwide Children's Hospital Suicide Prevention Center in Columbus, Ohio, and the Boys and Girls Club of America in Columbus, and we created a program for them to work with their teens during the summer, and we're hoping that that will continue year through. It'll probably have to be changed up a little bit because of the um, depth of the program. I think it's either... It's six modules of each ninety to minutes to two hours, all the way talking about from just bullying, family issues, safe adults to talk to, um, being okay with having the conversation, how do you talk about it, um, identifying it in your friends, um, actually having them do a safety plan, which we called Code Red, and it's um, they're actually going to be able to shrink it down to like a pocket-sized card for them so they can keep it in their pocket. And the other thing that um, I always suggest, even with just people that I do their safety plans, is take a screenshot of it. So you have it on your phone at all times because realistically, you're not going to carry a piece of paper with you. And some people don't carry purses all the time or wallets. And um, But what we're hoping is is that this program will then... I think right now it's set to launch next month. And then after that, it's going to hopefully launch a couple other cities in Ohio. Eventually, we'd like to spread it through Boys and Girls Clubs throughout the country. And we, uh, our committee is going to start working on more programs like that to be able to go to schools and, you know, different organizations and to be able to have that conversation. Because the more you talk about it, the more stigma is reduced. So that's really what's key and and make it, you know, more comfortable and not so taboo to have that conversation or to have those feelings.
0: When I was in high school, I remember a friend of mine calling and saying that he had been thinking of committing suicide, and I remember having no idea what to do. At that point in time, nobody talked about it. There was no education that I had ever received from the school or from anybody else for that matter about how to handle it if a friend was having any suicidal thoughts. Um, It sounds like we're moving away from things being so taboo. While it's important to have this dialogue and continue the conversation about suicide, it's also important to refrain from glamorizing it, whether that be through television or movies or even through news stories. Um, What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, even in um, the written literature, we... There is a standard of media guidelines uh, that American Association has put out for the media when reporting on suicide. And more and more, we're finding that they're following those guidelines. And one of the big guidelines is is do not disclose how the person died. Because again, like with Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, that could be so triggering for so many people. And so it really doesn't matter how they died. They died and it's sad and it's tragic, but you don't need to know how. So um, yes, that is a big thing. And you're right, because when I was in high school, like eons before that, (laughs) like (laughs) in the late 70s, (laughs) um, I also had a friend who was actually in a psychiatric hospital. Um, And I remember going with this other friend of mine to go visit him. And I didn't really understand. I mean, I was 17 years old, but I did not really understand, like, what did that mean that he actually tried to kill himself and why would he do that? I just knew he was depressed. He was sad and he had like a really bad home life. Um, But I just had no clue, really no clue until I was in college, I think, um, and then started, you know, learning more about it and mental health and all of that. But nobody talked about it.
0: When we see clients who may not have any reported suicidal thoughts, and they deny fantasizing about what life would be like if they weren't here, is it important to still bring up this topic for us to say, you know, it's not uncommon for people to sometimes think about hurting or killing themselves? Is that going on for you? Yeah, absolutely. And um, what I do
1: is, when someone has expressed any suicidal ideation, even if it's just on the very low end of those thoughts of death um, and just kind of not wanting to be here, I ask every single session, "So, where are you on your scale?" And then they'll tell me a three. I'm like, "Okay, well, what does that mean this week?" Because um, a lot of clients, I, I have one 18 year old who I've been seeing for about a year year, year and a half, who comes in every single time. She's had multiple suicide attempts. She was in residential. She's doing awesome now and working and driving. And I'm like, I'm so proud of her. And, but every time she comes in, um, she'll always say she's good. So I'll say, what does good mean? And good is usually never good. And then I'll ask her, so where are you on your scale? She's like, her baseline is a two. So she like does have thoughts, but she isn't gonna act on them at this point. So it's really just to be cognizant of completely and continually monitoring it and making it okay for the client to be able to talk about it on a regular basis.
0: I know for a lot of us in our traineeships, it was so uncomfortable to ask about this, to bring it up in session. It was so hard to ask that question. You would get through your assessment, you'd hit the question, and then quickly or quietly say, have you ever had thoughts about killing yourself? Have you ever tried to kill yourself? And then move on. Um, I think it sounds like it's important for us to still be having the conversation and model for clients that it's okay to bring this thing up and that this this is a topic that's fair game we need to be talking about it
1: yes and even more so i'll give you a great example is um it happened to me twice within a year so last year i had um, some minor back surgery and i was in you know the admitting where you're already like dressed for surgery iv's in hand right ready to go and the nurse comes in asking you all these questions fine uh, a couple months ago, I was in an urgent care because I bruised some ribs, and same same thing happened. I knew this time like what was coming. And the first time, the woman's like, "Well, I just have to ask you some questions. So, do you want your family to step out of the room?" I'm like, "No, absolutely not. It's fine." And so then she's like, "Okay, so is anybody harming you or hurting you?" and and they do screen for like what this nurse recently told me is like for trafficking and stuff. That's their big thing that they look for. Um, and I said, no. And then she said, okay. And I'm like, okay, here it comes. And she goes, um, so have you, and she, you could tell she was so uncomfortable and she said, um, so have you had thoughts of wanting to harm yourself? And I said, uh, no, I said, but can I ask you a question? She said, what? And I said, are you assessing for suicide? And she said, uh, yes, why? And I said, because you're not asking the question for suicide. And I explained what I do. And I explained, you know, very, you know, gently exactly why it is we need to ask directly. And I said, it's really important um, to ask that. And I said, it's so hard. I said, practice with your colleagues, because when I actually do trainings, I, in the, when they're live trainings, um, not online, I make people turn to each other and I make them ask each other like a gazillion times, you know, have you thought about wanting to kill yourself? Do you feel like you want to kill yourself different ways? Because it is so hard now, because I've done it so many times. Um, it's I could ask it in my sleep and it's not a problem for me, but I know I'm not the norm. Um, so yes, it is just so hard. So I would say practice, practice with a friend, practice with a spouse, whatever. But that is, and the same thing happened with that second nurse when she asked the same thing. Um, and they were both so grateful that I told them,
0: um, you know, and how to do it differently. So how about suicide helplines, knowing that there are now a number of services that you can call into or text into, How have you seen that play out in attempted suicide or actual death by suicide? Um,
1: So there was another statistic also. I, I don't remember the exact number, but the majority of people will not call a hotline of those people who attempt suicide or die by suicide, but they have been to a medical professional With There was like a large portion, like 60-something percent had been to a medical professional within a month, and 34%, I think, had been within a week. So they are reaching out for help somehow, but um, same thing. I just continue to normalize it, and I bring it up to everybody. And uh, the one big thing is, is now they have crisis text line. And so you text 741741 and you put the subject line, you can put help, hello, start, whatever, and they text you back. And it is so effective. And the people who volunteer are trained so thoroughly and they are so wonderful. Um, and I was recently in Ohio for a family event. And unfortunately, there was a tragic death of a student, an elementary school student, um, by suicide. Just fluke that I was there. And um, my husband's cousin's a teacher and called to say, knowing that I was there, can I help? And so I went to go work with the staff and the kids. And that's the one thing that these kids thought was amazing was at first they were afraid to to text. I said, well, let's do it together. So that's what I do with a lot of my clients, because I know that once they do it with me, they're not afraid. And so if I call the suicide hotline with them, I will tell them, hey, I just want to let you know I'm a therapist. This is a test call. I have a client sitting with me so that they'll feel more comfortable. And the same thing when we text crisis text line, um, when they answer, how can I help you? I'll say, oh, I'm a therapist. I'm with you know some clients who have experienced death and suicide or who have had suicidal ideation, whatever it is, And I want to show them how your service works so they'll feel comfortable and they have a full on conversation with them and it's awesome. So, you know, that's what I would suggest is really trying to, um, you know, do that with your clients to make them feel more comfortable, because that's going to increase the chance that they're going to use it. It's not going to be this foreign thing of like, oh, yeah, the number to call or text.
0: I've had clients be positively impacted by these helplines. We here at Clearly Clinical actually donate to the Trevor Project, which is an LGBTQ plus youth suicide prevention hotline. I've personally seen for my clients how impactful the service like that can be. Going back to what you were saying about the gentleman that had jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, um, it, it seems like really an opportunity for people to connect with another human and perhaps start to feel that they are valued and that their feelings are important and that they're important.
1: Yes. Yeah, definitely.
0: And, um,
1: more and more, uh, crisis text line, I believe is now in Canada. And if they're not already international, they're going international, I believe, but it's, it's, it really is a lifesaver for a lot of people. Um, and sometimes people just need to know there's that connection or that someone there, that's it. And they're good. Well, they're not good, maybe, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, important. yeah. They definitely feel like they have a bit more hope that someone was there for them.
0: In this specialization, to go back to how it actually looks in our practices, what are some other things that we can be doing as mental health professionals, in addition to what you've already discussed today, to really help bridge the gap and address this phenomenon, to address uh, suicidality?
1: Um, I think really be able to find out what it is that your clients need and, you know, and especially in private practice, it's so important to be either in a consultation group or know, have a number of someone that you can call in case you do have something that you need to debrief. Um, but you know, I think that the more you speak with other professionals, you'll find they do things different ways, or they have different tools or techniques that they can use um, to be able to help. Um, I think the more trainings you have, you know, this is the other myth is, Oh, I've already had one training in suicide risk assessment, or I've had one training in suicidal clients. I'm good. Yeah. I listen to one podcast, yeah, I to one podcast <laughs> for an hour. Um, I've already done, this is my fifth podcast in, I don't know, six, eight months. And every single one has been different. So there is always different information. And then I'm doing a series of webinars, such different information. And the fact that every year, the American Association of Suicidology, their numbers increase of people going to their conference. This year, we had, I think, almost 1,500 people um, come, whereas last year was maybe 1,100. There are always different topics and subjects and new research. And You can never learn enough and kind of like what I always say to the um, clinicians that I supervise or the interns that I've had when they're in their master's programs is the day I stop learning is the day I need to get out of this field. So this in particular particular is truly a matter of life or death and you can never get enough information on the subject as far as I'm concerned.
0: That leads me to one of my other questions, which I think is one of the harder things for us to talk about. What do we do to help take care of ourselves if we as clinicians have a client that dies by suicide? Um, You, number one, should be getting consultation
1: around it clinically, and you should be going to see a therapist for yourself, for your own just grief, you know, besides the fact that there might be countertransference, but just your own grief Um, and therapists who there are therapists also who specialize in seeing people, you know, who have had grief or deaths or, you know, suicide. And so those would be the therapists that I would reach out to. Or if you're already seeing your therapist, that's a perfect, you know, thing. But um, aside from just having a client die by suicide, when you're working with clients in this field, period, but high risk clients, there's so much compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma that you need to have self-care and um, therapy is self-care because you know you can so get caught up in this suicidal crisis process with them. Um, so you really need to be able to be able to seek out that help.
0: I've had clients who have divulged that they have a plan and they have means. And so our next step of course is to call the emergency response team. Then there's this big fracture in our relationship with that client. Um, of course, we can frame it by the fact that our primary job is to help keep the client safe and say, you know, basically, I'm going to cross that bridge with you together. Whatever happens from now when I make this phone call, whether they take you for assessment or hospitalization or not, I'm going to cross that bridge with you. What other recommendations do you have about how to manage that after the fact, after we've called the emergency response team and how to help heal that fracture with a client? Yeah. uh, The first thing is,
1: is that I let them know they have every right to be angry and they can they could be angry and it's okay. Like I'm not going to get upset that they're angry because I think one of the things that happens is, is people in their lives don't let them get angry, or if they get angry, then they abandon them. And so these clients have a real fear of abandonment. Um, But the other thing is, is to really talk to them about how this was such, such a compassionate thing on, on your part, because you do care and you do want to see them live. And that's, In truth, what they want to hear in the end is that there is someone who cares. A lot of times, you know, people think, oh, therapists are just there to do their job and they're just there, you know, for the money. And I can't tell you how many times I've had teens tell me that, you know, you're here because my mom pays you. (laughs) Um, But the truth is, when you let them know that you genuinely care then that helps to start repair that fracture. And you can let them know that it'll take time. You know it'll take time, you know, for them to start to rebuild that trust. And that's okay, but you're going to still be here for them every step of the way, just like you were when you said, like when you crossed that bridge to make that difficult decision in the beginning.
0: The research shows that people who have attempted suicide previously are significantly more like likely to attempt it again how do we integrate that information when we hear from someone that they attempted suicide, say, 12 years ago? That's
1: really the key importance of such a detailed intake history, um, so much so that I go back to the mother's pregnancy, and people laugh at me, and, but I can't tell you how many times that that's where that client's problem started. You know, um, clients are premature, or they have um, medical problems, a parent is an alcoholic that they're never going to tell you about. And so um, as you go through their entire history, and then you do find out that they had a previous attempt, you need to find out everything about that attempt. So, you know, maybe that person's life has totally turned around. Maybe they were in an abusive relationship. Maybe they were married to a person that they, you know, couldn't be. Maybe they were a teen living with a parent that was high conflict, and maybe like all of their circumstances have changed, but that doesn't mean that that still wasn't a coping skill that they utilized before. So to be able to have all of that information at your hands and to have an honest conversation about it with them.
0: It seems like there are so many things for us to remember when it comes to appropriately assessing and then managing possible suicidality in clients. We can start by seeing a client and then their life situation changes. If we don't have a specialization in this, we might find ourselves kind of outside of our scope unexpectedly. So we might be seeing a client that's well within our scope when we first start working together, but something changes and perhaps say six months into treatment, that person is now having suicidal thoughts, maybe gestures come up. To recap, in your eyes, we then seek consultation, we refer out or into a higher level of care like intensive outpatient or potentially even hospitalization or residential treatment, and we seek training. We don't know when someone who has been stable may transition out of that stability and need an appropriate response from us. Noreen, I know you and I could sit and talk about this topic for quite a while Thank you for sharing your time and expertise. What are some resources that our listeners can look for, like books, websites, trainings, and how can they get in touch with you?
1: Um, So... They can find me on my website at Noreen Vanderhoven, N O R I N E V A N D E R H O O V E N, it's a mouthful, um, dot com. Uh, Or I also have a free Facebook group for suicide risk assessment for mental health professionals. And um, that's where people ask lots of great questions. I've been doing some webinars there. Um, I'm going to be doing a course, a six week course as well. So feel free to, uh, you know, request to join that. That It's just called Suicide Risk Assessment for Mental Health Professionals. If you put it in Facebook, it will come right up. Um, a great website is um, uh, suicidology.org. That is the website for the American Association of Suicidology. And the other one is AFSP.com, I believe it is. It's um, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and they really focus on... Um, lost survivors, so people who have lost uh, loved ones to suicide and how to support them. And both of those have great resources. And from there, they will give you a
0: ton more resources. Thank you again, Noreen. We really appreciate you being here. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of Continuing Ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.